U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and over there is Steven. Yo, Steven, what's up? Hey there, everyone. How you doing? So, we have a few more conflicts, and then the XO wanted to also touch on the Para Expedition. So we're going to do that, which will, at the end of this, will bring us to the Civil War. Away down south from the land of traitors, rattlesnakes and alligators. I don't know the next words, but I'll learn them next episode. That was nice. That was good. I like that. <laughs> so, are you ready to get underway after serenading us? Let's cast off. So, the first place we're going is the Second Opium War. You ready to war about drugs? Well, uh, let's see if this one goes better than uh, the last 30 years. This involves the British, the French, the U.S., and the Chinese. Ah, if it smells like imperialism, clap your hands. So, the 1850s. This is a time that saw the rapid growth of imperialism. <laughs> Some of the shared goals of these Western powers were the expansion of their markets overseas and the establishment of new ports to trade with. So, in an effort to expand their trading privileges with China, Britain demanded that the Qing Dynasty to renegotiate the Treaty of Nanjing so that they could get more trade going. They demanded that China open all of their ports to the British. They wanted all of China. They also wanted them to legalize opium trading. They wanted exemption from imports duties and international transit duties. And of course they want suppression of piracy. They also wanted regulation of the coolie trade. And they also wanted to establish a embassy. And of course, they wanted to make sure that all English language versions of all treaties take precedence over the Chinese versions. In other words, the English are more important than the Chinese. Yeah, the uh, history of... British, I mean, European in general, but especially British and Chinese relations is a very compelling story. Not a great one, though, if uh, you are in, you know, any way rooting for China and uh, yeah. don't endorse imperialism. So do you know how the Qing Dynasty took this? Not well, not well at all. You're correct. They rejected the demand straight out. They're like, no. Mm-hmm. A lot of the King uh, Dynasty uh, cabinet members, um, I forget the official title, but magistrates, um, like, they were feeling pretty hot to trot. A few of them were saying, like, guys, we need to try and find somewhere in the middle to meet because we're royally outgunned here. Remember how the last one went, but a lot of them were feeling lucky this time around. Yeah, we're going to get into how things went with this time. 
So, on October 8th of 1856, King Dynasty officials boarded the Arrow. This was a Chinese-owned ship that is registered in Hong Kong. So, it's a British ship and was suspected of piracy and smuggling. Twelve of the crew members, all Chinese actually, were arrested in suspicion of the piracy. The British officials in Gongzhou demanded the release of the sailors, claiming that the ship had been recently registered by the British, which means it was protected under the Treaty of Nanjing. The British also said that the Arrow had been flying a British ensign, so they pulled out the correct flag from the flag locker and that the King Dynasty soldiers had insulted the flag. By arresting suspected pirates? No. By the handling, how they handled the flag, because they took it down. Flag protocol was not observed, according to the British. Right. The negotiations eventually did break down. But Thankfully, all the sailors that had been arrested were returned before the negotiations ceased. And the British also got a letter saying, we will take great care that next time British ships would not be boarded improperly. And that will, you know, be nice to your flag. I mean, that's about as nice as you can hope for in that situation. Right. Now... Later, we find out that the the Arrow's registration has actually been expired Ooh. at the time this happened. So, yeah, it didn't actually have any right to be flying a British flag because it was not registered in Britain at the time. It was unregistered. And what kind of ships like to be unregistered? <laughs> Yo, vo, matey. That's what I thought. So it turns out the arrests were lawful. But, you know... You put throw politicians at it, they can make up all sorts of BS and just badger you into, okay, fine, whatever, 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 just go. So we have a statement by a man named Richard Cobden, who was a British MP during this time. He gave a speech to Parliament the day after the prisoners were released. He said, quote, Operations were commenced against the barrier forts on the Canton River from October 23rd to November 13th. These naval and military operations were continuous. The barrier forts, the Bulg forts, the Blenheim forts, and the Dutch Folly forts at 23 Chinese junks were all taken or destroyed. The suburbs of Canton were pulled, burnt, or battered down and the ships might fire upon the walls of the town. So it seems like by that statement that this ship was involved in that skirmish, which I don't know why. How is that relevant to the initial arrest? Or is this just a political grandstanding to say like, we're not the ones at fault? I think it's mostly political grandstanding, trying to save face that a possible military vessel was seized, boarded, and the crew was arrested. And they had the gall to call them pirates. Pirates, I say. 
when they were just honest British merchantmen press-ganged into naval service. And yes, they may have taken some goods. But who doesn't? It's war. Yeah. So, the King Dynasty, they decided not to pursue matters with this because they were already facing a rebellion that they had to put down. So taking on the Western military as well would not have been good. So the British were also facing a rebellion of their own. Do you know where this was coming from? Uh, shooting from the hip, I'm going to guess India. You are absolutely correct, my friend. So they were dealing with that, but they were like, you know what? We can't let this arrow incident go. And so they attacked Guangzhou from the Pearl River. The governor of Guangdong and Guangxi provinces, they ordered all of the Chinese soldiers that were manning the forts to Okay, guys, lay down your arms. Just let the British have their tantrum. So they take the fort with little effort, and they then move on to Guangzhou. Now, in Hong Kong, there was a attempt to poison the British superintendent of trade, a man named Sir John Bowring. And his family. What, what'd they do? Spike the tea? No, it was a baker. He tried to lace the bread with arsenic, but he bungled it. He put too much of the poison in the dough. So all of his victims threw everything up. So they did not have non-lethal doses uh, of the arsenic. When you put too much poison in, the body rejects it. Who knew? Yeah. So word reaches Britain. And uh, yeah, this issue quickly became a subject of controversy. So the British House of Commons passes a resolution against the government saying, quote, that this house has heard with concerns of the conflicts which have occurred between the British and Chinese authorities on the Canton River. And without expressing opinion to the extent of which the government of China may have afforded this country cause of complaint respecting the non-fulfillment of the treaty in 1842. This House considers that the papers which have been laid on the table fail to establish satisfactory grounds for the violent measures resorted to at Canton in the late affair of the Arrow, and that a select committee be appointed to inquire into the state of our commercial relations with China. So Lord Palmerston, he responds to this and assaulted the patriotism of the Whigs who sponsored this resolution and then Parliament was dissolved. What, what do you mean Parliament was dissolved? Like Parliament was now no longer in power until this issue was resolved? Or does your article say anything about uh, new members of Parliament replacing old ones the next day? There was an election, so maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, details unclear. Somebody may have taken an acid bath, but more likely they just called it the end of the day at that point. Yeah. 
So after the election, and there's now an increased majority for Palmerston, which means that the voices within the Whig faction who were in support of China were shut down. And the new parliament decided to seek redress from China based on the reports about the Arrow incident. The French and the US and the Russians received requests from Britain to form an alliance after this. So yeah, I guess Parliament was dissolved. They said, go away, you're gone, <laughs> bye-bye. All right, it's time for the monarchy to step in at this point. So, France, they are like, you know what? We will join you because China just executed a French missionary. So, yes, we're on board with you. France and Britain working together? I'm shocked. There you go. This is one of the first times we've come across where they're friends. I think it is the first time. <laughs> yes. So the U.S. and Russia, they send envoys to Hong Kong to offer help to the British and the French. But they don't send any military aid. They just send on envoys. And also at this time, the U.S. was actually involved in two different campaigns. One of them for a retaliation on a Chinese attack on a U.S. Navy officer. And this results in the Battle of the Pearl River Forts near Canton. And the second one was in 1859 when a warship, the USS San Jacinto, bombarded the Taku Forts. And this was in support of British and French troops on the ground. So it sounds like a lot of these situations were, at the local level, Chinese officials, you know, I don't want to say cracking down, because uh, mur murdering a uh, a missionary, ne never a good look, but, <laughs> yeah. No. But local incidents getting escalated to the point where they become international incidents and uh, foreign powers using it as an excuse to start throwing their weight around in the area. Yeah. So, I mean, the Navy, that was pretty much it for the Navy, just bombarding land targets. That's why we're not going to go into the battles. Because, right. I mean, it's short bombardment. What are, what are you going to say? They shot at a fort. The fort was in not as good of shape afterwards. Right. Do we know what the details were of the incident with the uh, U.S. naval officer? The U.S. had sent a shore party, and when they were leaving the boat that they were rowing back out to the USS Portsmouth, that's the yeah. ship they were assigned to, the garrison, a Chinese garrison, opened fire mm. on it. So that is the, that's the incident. The Chinese garrison opened fire on the small boat with the Navy naval officer on it. Um, and so they retaliated the next day. So the British and French, they joined forces under Admiral Sir Michael Seymour. And they attack the Yongzhou area in late 1857. They capture Ye Ming Shin and Bo Gui, who is the governor of Guangdong. And then, of course, the city surrender. 
a joint committee was now formed. And Bo Ji, he gets to remain as his original post to maintain order for the British and French from the civilian population. And so the British and French alliance, they maintain control for about four years. The coalition then cruises north and they capture the Taco Forts near Tianjin in May. Then we have an interlude. This is where you get your popcorn and your drinks, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, this is what a treaty signed. That's not what you're supposed to do during intermission. During a war intermission? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was looking up the rule book in the officer's mess earlier today, and it said specifically, use the restroom, top off your drink, get your snacks, man your battle stations again. No, you have to show me that. Did Was it, they, was it, did it have a lot of colorful pictures? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's the little sailor's version. We'll have to get you the big boy version. Oh, I got them mixed up. Always do that. So, the major points of this treaty, which is the Treaty of Tengsten, one, British, France, Russia, and the U.S. would have the right to establish diplomatic legislations in Peking, which at this time was closed to everyone. Hmm. In other words, they could establish embassies. Yeah. Uh, ten more Chinese ports would be open for foreign trade. They also established the right for all foreign vessels, including commercial ships, to navigate freely on the Yangtze River. Geez, th th this, this treaty more or less made China a puppet state for Western powers. Or attempted to, yes. Another point was the right of foreigners to travel in the internal regions of China, which up until this point was banned. They like, you keep your foreign fingers out of my fields. You can go in the ports. You can even go in the cities in the ports. I won't confine you to the boats, but that's, that's as far as you get. And China was to pay Britain and France eight million teals of silver each. So, the value grand total of all those towns of silver, 404,976,000 in 2022 U.S. dollars. So, a, a little under half a billion, more or less. Not chump change. Not chump change, but it's not the biggest price check we've heard. It's not... At the same time, this is before China is the industrial powerhouse that it is today. China is still primarily an agricultural economy at this point. So that was the last major point that the Treaty of Tenston had. And then there was another treaty, the Treaty of Aigun, which was a separate treaty signed with Russia. Because, you know, Russia has to have their own treaties. They can't just be lumped into everybody else. And this was to revise the Chinese-Russian border. This gave Russia the left bank of the Amur River and pushing the border back from the Argun River, which pretty much gave Russia control over non-freezing areas of the Pacific coast, where they founded the city Vladivostok, 
1860. Good for Russia? No. No. No? No. So, that brings us to June 1858. Shortly after the Qing Dynasty agrees to the treaties. Agrees would be a strong term. Agrees implies that they thought this was a good deal. Yes, agrees are in quotes. So, more... So, a lot of ministers go up to the emperor... And they say, we need to resist this encroachment by the West. So the emperor was like, okay, I want the Mongolian general, Seng Richun, to guard the Diagu forts near Tianjin. So he reinforces it with artillery, and he brings 4,000 cavalry to there from other places all right so the british they bring in a force of 2200 troops and 21 ships under the command of admiral sir james hope he sails north with the newly appointed anglo-french envoys for the embassies in beijing and they sail to the mouth of the high river which is guarded by the force that just got reinforced and they demanded to continue inland to Beijing. Now, the general, he tells them that the envoys, they can land up the coast and proceed to Beijing, but no armed troops are allowed to go to the Chinese capital. That seems pretty dang reasonable. Yes, to you and me. But do you think the Anglo-French forces thought it was reasonable oh heavens no they're coming here to civilize this country harumph what do you think we are savages that'll just start opening fire on civilians that only happened five or six times exactly so yes they insist on landing right there instead of going up the coast a little bit and to escort the envoys to beijing so the evening of June 24th, a small group of British forces, they blow up the iron obstacles that the Chinese had placed in the river. And the next day, they decided, we're going to go. We're going to sail right up the river. And so they, sh they shell that fort. <sighs> Guys, you're not, you're not making yourselves look that great. They did encounter fierce resistance from the general's reinforced positions. And so they fought for 24 hours. Yeah, I can't imagine why they thought they may not encounter resistance. You're literally denying a pretty reasonable request. Don't land troops in our capital when you say you're here for a negotiation. And your response is, yeah, but we really want to. Yeah. And uh, I know you just erected these barriers, but uh, I'll take that under advisement. Open fire, please. So after 24 hours, they withdraw. They lose four gunboats and two severely damaged. And they withdraw under cover of fire from a new naval squadron that pulls up. This was 
a naval squadron under Commodore Josiah Tattenall. And this is a U.S. squadron. This violated the U.S. neutrality in China. So, yeah. Now the U.S. might be involved. Again. We just can't seem to stay out of this one. Yeah. So, the next summer, a giant Anglo-French force, 11,000 British, 6,700 French, go in with 173 ships. They go from Hong Kong and capture port cities, Yanti, Dalian, and they seal the Bohai Gulf. Then they do an invasion landing near Tang. It's about two miles from the forts that had obliterated those ships and made them turn tail and run. And it takes them about three weeks, but they capture that too. So after taking all this, they start marching towards Beijing. Oh, this is going to go well. Well, the U.S. aren't involved, so maybe nothing will be set on fire. Captain, both you and I know that everything that is flammable will be flammed. Well, so there is approximately just under 20,000 men marching on Beijing right now. Oh, no. Uh. So the emperor, they, they send people out for peace talks. Let me guess, the British and the French were not feeling uh, particularly peaceful. No, the British envoy was arrested. Wait, what? Yeah. By who? By the Chinese. It, but the emperor just sent out people for peace talks. Yeah, that's why they broke down. Uh, oh, no. And apparently half were murdered by the Chinese in a fashion called slow slicing. I haven't eaten in the last hour, so I mean, if you want to go into it, go into it. Oh no, that's that's as far as I'm going into it. I, uh, children, listen to this. Oh, you're you raise an excellent point. You raise an excellent <laughs> point. <laughs> so yeah, this of course this really ticked off the British. Yeah, y you know what? At this point, I'm beginning to feel like just everybody's an idiot in this conflict. Yes, I agree with you 100. percent So. This just under 20,000 man force clashed with the Mongolian general and was swiftly defeated. And then they went to the outskirts of Beijing and they had a huge battle there as well. The last resistance was about 10,000 of the Chinese troops and they were completely annihilated because they just kept doing frontal charges against concentrated firepower. Oh, guys, no, 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 no. Terrible idea. Even back in this era. So, here comes your favorite part. Burn, baby, burn? Burn, baby, burn. Yep, they burn the summer palaces. <sighs> guys, come on. I know at this point it's a running joke in this show, but that doesn't mean you have to make it true every time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the army's defeated. The emperor has fled. He left his brother, Prince Gong, to be in charge of the negotiations. How'd Gong do on that? Well, we'll get to that. First, the, the emperor. 
he first flees to his summer palace in Shengdi. And the troops follow them. And they start looting the summer palace. And then they're like, oh, there's another one over there. That's, oh, we're in the new one. There's the old one right there across the street. Let's go get that one too. And then once the diplomatic prisoners who did survive, because remember I said only about half of them survived. Yeah. Yeah. The general in charge was like, you know what? Let's go ahead and burn those places down. He doesn't deserve those summer palaces. Yeah. Even if they're offering insulting terms, you don't kill diplomats. Right. It's not their fault. But on a bright note, Beijing wasn't occupied. The army stayed outside the city. I feel like you're uh, counting a small victory when it's a little uh, overshadowed by the giant conflagration of the summer palaces. I mean, they could have completely looted and ransacked and destroyed Beijing. Oh, Be Beijing was actually untouched. Okay, that is actually a pretty big win there. Yeah. It was just the Summer Palaces. Okay. Now, they did discuss destroying the Forbidden City. And this was to try to discourage the Chinese from using kidnapping as a bargaining tool. And, of course, as more revenge against the prisoners that were taken. And it was more than these, just these envoys. There was also a journalist for the Times that was taken. The New York Times? London Times? It just says The Times, so maybe it's The World Times. No? Okay. I, <laughs> I was going to say, like, there's a lot of newspapers with The Times. Yeah. Uh, so the Russians and the French, they were like, no, you know what? We're going to stop at the Summer Palaces because this is the most... This is the least objectionable thing to destroy in revenge. And destroying these two palaces would not jeopardize the treaty. So we're just going to stop here. Let's wait and see. And how was the UK feeling about it? They were drunk. Like they were actually drunk or they were just drunk with the firebug? Both. <laughs> so the treaty is finally ratified by Prince Gong. And this is the Convention of Peking. This happened October 18th of 1860, bringing the war to an end. This allowed the British, French, and Russians permanent diplomatic presence in Beijing. The Chinese had to pay the 8 million teals uh, that we mentioned earlier. British were given Kowloon which is a small area next to Hong Kong. The opium trade was legalized, and Christians were granted full civil rights, which allowed them to own properties and the right to preach. Then two weeks later, the Russians came back in. They were like, you know what? You're going to sign this too. This is the Supplementary Treaty of Peking. And this gave Russia more land. Pretty much everything east of the Usuri River. So that is the Second Opium War. How are you feeling after that one? Ugh. 
Just, oh, Like, I, not too much U.S. involvement, but... Holy crap, it felt like it was the Seminole Wars all over again, just, you know, in China instead of Florida. <laughs> yeah. So, that will bring us to the second Fiji expedition. So, the summer of 1858. Two American citizens on Wea are killed and cannibalized by the natives. And so, when the word of this reached the American consulate, the Pacific Squadron sent the USS Vondalio, which was commanded by Arthur Sinclair. They arrived there October 2nd, and they decided that in order to get to Wea, they needed a boat with a shallower draft because, you know, they need to go from blue water to brown water. Right, right. So the commander, Sinclair, he charters the scooter mechanic and he gives her to Lieutenant Charles Caldwell and places 10 Marines on board, 40 sailors, and a 12-pound howitzer. There's the cannon. <laughs> There's the cannon. They also take a couple Fijian guides and three merchant sailors from the U.S. for, you know, navigational purposes. So they set sail. And during their passage, Lieutenant Caldwell's men, they heard many stories from the different towns and villages that they passed about the warriors that they were looking for. They also received a letter from the chiefs that were responsible for the deaths of the American traders. And it said, quote, Do you suppose we have killed the two white men for nothing? No! We killed them and we have eaten them. We are great warriors and we delight in war. Wait, so the letter they sent wasn't trying to explain their side of the story other than come at me, bro. Yeah. You were tasty. I want more. Long pork is on the menu, boys. Yeah, Caldwell, he later writes in his journal, quote, And woe to the members of any strange tribe that falls into their hands. To be clubbed to death and eaten is the only alternative for the captive. It is not a matter of surprise that the tribes along our route learned with feelings of satisfaction the nature of our expedition. So nobody liked these guys. That is what we're getting from Caldwell. Well, the truth actually is maybe a bit different. But, I mean, the victors are the ones that write the history, right? It, exactly. Exactly. So, at 0300 on October 9th, the Americans make a landing and march towards the village of Somati over, you know, the tropical and mountainous train that was between them and the village. Now, while they were going through the mountains, the 12-pound cannon was destroyed and left behind because it fell 2,300 feet down the side of a mountain as they were trying to pull it up. Yeah, you know, you may have violated the warranty with that one. Yeah, you're better off just getting a new one there, Chief. Yeah, they left it. So when the men reach the city, it was daytime now. The sun had come up. 
And there are over 300 native warriors positioned in front of them to defend their home. Which, not surprising. Yup. As soon as that cannon went down the hill with a big crash, they probably were like, oh, they're on the way. So these warriors wore white robes. They're armed with clubs, rocks, spears, bows, and a couple muskets. The Americans, they had swords, carbine rifles, and the battle will start when Lieutenant Caldwell orders a flanking maneuver. So I don't think carbine rifles have uh, come up yet. That That's simply a pistol grip rifle, right? In this era, at least. They're going to be definitely better than muskets. It's breech loaded instead of, you know, loaded in the front. Right. So pretty much you hit a lever, the breech opens, you put it in, you close it, then you use either a percussion cap directly on the nipple or you use a priming system to put on the nipple. So it could be loaded and fired much faster than a musket. So the battle did not last for long. Pretty much the natives instantly routed once they realized they had been flanked and they ran away. They ran into the town or they just went into the jungle and were like, peace out. You don't taste that good. <laughs> Afterwards, the master's mate, a man named John K. Bartlett, he leads a group of sailors in a song, red, white, and blue, and they let out three cheers. Then they charge and capture the village. Now, you might be wondering what the uh, cannon crew were doing since they didn't have a 12-pounder anymore. Well, you know what they had? Ramrods. What they had was fire. Dang, Nabbit. They took charge of burning the village down. 115 huts were destroyed. Without fail. Every time. <laughs> Why am I surprised? Why did I not open with that guess? Yeah, the Marines, they provided a rear guard for the sailors as they ransacked and burned down the town. And they were attacked. They repulsed a final wave that had regrouped in the jungle and had tried to come back for one more taste of U.S. flesh. <laughs> mm. Tastes like barbecue sauce and liberty. So, all in all, there were 14 warriors dead. Two of them chiefs. 36 wounded. Two marines were wounded by the muskets these natives had, but they survived. And two sailors were hurt by rocks. There was a Marine who got hit with an arrow in his leg, and a sailor was also hurt, but they don't say why or how. They used to be a Marine like you until he took an arrow to the knee. So all in all, six U.S. servicemen wounded and one cannon destroyed. So a successful operation on the part of the Americans? Rest in peace, 12-pound howitzer. Your legacy lives on? Yes. So after the battle, they go back to the mechanic where she was waiting for them. 
And they stopped at all the villages along the way saying, guess what? We beat them up. We killed a couple of their chiefs and a bunch of them. Now, they did realize that two ramrods and a bayonet were lost. And that hopefully they don't get reversed engineered. So that is the second VG expedition. How you feeling? That was a roller coaster. <laughs> that was. So we are actually out of time. We're going to have to stretch this into two of episodes. I don't think either of us expected uh, the second war on uh, drugs in the 1800s to go quite that long. Nope, I did not. Not at all. So we are going to go ahead and stop here for today. And so next time we're going to go through the Reform War, the Paraguay Expedition, and the Perry Expedition. And hopefully that'll be enough for an episode. And if not, then we'll go ahead and start on the, the Civil War. I'll brush up on my Union Dixie. Yankee Steven went to town just riding on a donkey. Oh, you know that one. Oh, wonderful. All right. Well, this is where we're going to end it. Uh, if you would like to send the EXO a tweet, where would they do that at, EXO? Well, folks, you can send that at USN History Pod for Twitter. You can also email us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Beautiful. Beautiful. Two weeks in a row, folks. I don't think he thought he would ever see the day. And if you could, leave us a review. We would love to hear from you, one way or another, by review, by email, by tweet. We would love to hear from you. More stars the better, but we do appreciate honesty. So with that, I think we will wish you fair winds and following seas. Until next time, folks. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 